And brothers and sisters, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to First uh, Samuel chapter 17. We're going to read almost the entire chapter. And it's a, it's a long chapter, but with David and Goliath, I, I fear that we have read many storybook Bibles. We've seen lots of cartoons and movies. And I want to make sure that we have the text, the inspired text in our minds as we're walking through this together. So we're going to go to the Word of God, and it is such a powerful text, I have no doubt that you'll be drawn in. So let's start in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkot, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkot and Azekah and Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of the three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. 
And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go for with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way 
from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. Well, I think we could probably just go home now, don't you think? The word of the Lord, how wonderful. And as we walk through this together and just point out um, some of the important uh, verses here that draw out the point of this passage, I know that you're going to see with, uh, with greater clarity how awesome God is to reveal his word to us in this way. As I start this sermon, I, I, think, of, I think of my father. I have a great relationship with my dad. He's, he's a big man. He's tall. He played college football, and uh, he was a police officer in Houston for 45 years. And so I like to give him a hard time about the quickest way to get him to tear up. See, if you want my dad to cry a bit, all you have to do is cue up any underdog sports movie, and it won't be long before the tears begin to flow. Of course, he's going to blame it on his allergies each time. He's got allergies, and that's why you hear him sniffing down the row. Well, our text this morning is an underdog story. But it's not an underdog story in the way that we have come to expect underdog stories. If you walk away from 1 Samuel 17 with the same message as when you watch Rudy or Hoosiers, then you've missed it. It's not an underdog story in the same way. You'll see that as we walk through three points. And our three points this morning are, number one, the fearful opponent. Number two, the unlikely challenger. And number three, the ultimate champion. Let's look at our first point of the morning. It comes from verses 1 through 11 primarily. The fearful opponent. If you look back with me, at verses 4 through 7 in this segment, then you're going to see the stature of Goliath. You're going to see his armor. You're going to see his weaponry. Look back with me for just a moment, starting in verse 4. It tells us that Goliath, was his height was six cubits and a span. What does that mean? We don't, we don't measure things that way today. So how tall was Goliath? You may have a note in your Bible that tells us he's about 9 feet 6 inches. That's how big he is. About 9 feet 6 inches tall. Now, what about his armor? Well, he's got a helmet and a coat of mail. And mail is, is, just think like armor that looks like scales laid on top of each other. And the armor weighs 125 pounds. 125 pounds, and he's got bronze armor, a javelin bronze, uh, a javelin of bronze, a spear with a head weighing 15 pounds. The spear itself has a head that weighs 15 pounds. And then he's got a shield bearer. And the shield bearer's job was to go out in front of the warrior so that his body was protected by the shield bearer. Not to mention later we're told that Goliath has a sword in his hand as well. New Testament theologian Tom Schreiner says, likely there would have been Israelite soldiers that weighed less than Goliath's armor. This is the kind of guy 
with his stature, with his weaponry, with his armor. This is the kind of guy that everyone's going to place their bets on. Everyone's going to say, that guy's winning this contest. This fight belongs to Goliath. He's virtually unbeatable. That's what we need to take away from these descriptions here in the early part of this chapter. But it's not just his stature, his armor, and his weaponry that is intimidating. He also gives a defiant challenge. Verse 10, he says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now, this word defy from verse 10 is very important for understanding 1 Samuel 17. This word actually shows up um, six times in this chapter. In verse 10, 25, and it shows up twice in verse 26, verse 36, and verse 45. That same word. And uh, it's actually translated a different way in verse 26 with the word reproach. But I was doing some reading in a great little commentary on 1 Samuel by Dale Ralph Davis, and he drew attention to the fact that we have this repetition in 1 Samuel 17 for a reason. It tells us something about the focus of this chapter. Why this defiant challenge? Well, it's more than just him defying the Israelites. See, he's defying God himself. By defying the armies of Israel, he's defying God himself. And that becomes very important as we see David and his heart of faith later on. Well, when we think about someone to come to the battle lines to fight with Goliath, the obvious choice for someone to do this would be Saul. He's the king. It would be Saul. But along with the rest of Israel, he's dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 11. Dismayed and greatly afraid. If you remember, the people of Israel rejected God as their king so that they could have a human king, and this is the guy they got. The one who is dismayed and greatly afraid. The fear of Israel in our text is referenced three times. Verse 11, 24, and 32. Their fear. We ask, where is the faith of Israel? The contrast here between David, as we'll see, and the unbelief of Israel, the unbelief of Saul. And in fact, if you think back to 1 Samuel 16, if you remember when Samuel came to anoint David, and it was in chapter 16, verse 7, that we read this. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, right, speaking of the firstborn, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now you could look at chapter 17 and see that as kind of an example of what the Lord is talking about here in chapter 16, verse 7. Israel, Saul, they're looking at the outward appearance of Goliath. And as we'll see, they're also looking at the outward appearance of David. Well, this fearsome foe, this fearful opponent, is one that is intimidating. And there's an unlikely challenger to face him. It's not Saul. It's David. And so I want to look at his, 
I want to look at David's heart. I want to look at the obstacles that are before him. And I also want to look at his faith. And we're going to grab these points from verses 12 through 40. Verse 14 in this section of verse Samuel 17 tells us that he is the youngest of Jesse's sons. He's the youngest. And we also find out that that um, 40 days have passed. If you go along in verse 16, 40 days have passed. That's, that's more than enough time, isn't it? More than enough time for a challenger to come forward and fight Goliath. To challenge him. But verse 24 t- tells us that Israel fled from him. They fled. What does David do? It's in contrast to the rest of Israel. What do we see in him? Look with me at verse 26 and we'll find out. David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David doesn't see a fearful giant warrior He sees an enemy of God. That's what he sees. An enemy of God who's not only defying the armies of Israel, but defying God himself. David sees things as they really are. See, David is concerned with God's glory. He's concerned with the glory of Yahweh. It reminds me of Psalm 119, verse 53, where the author writes this, Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Once that verse in, in David's faith here, they make me want to look at my own heart. Do, do they make you want to look at your own heart? Do you have that focus? Do you have that concern for God's glory so that when people forsake God by disobeying His law or they defy Him with their words, that hot indignation seizes you? David, with his faith and with his heart focused on the glory of the Lord, has some obstacles in his way, as we see in our text as well. He gets no help from his brother Eliab. It's kind of a first obstacle that he's got. He's, he's the jealous brother. He's, he defiant in the face of David. You know, he goes, I know that the evil in your heart. You just want to come out and see the battle. So he's got, Kind of an enemy in his jealous brother. But then he's got Saul, who is the unbelieving king. He sees David's youth. He, he sees, really, he sees David like Goliath sees David. Saul looks at David and he only sees that he is a youth, just like Goliath later on sees David and disdains him because he's a youth. So Saul is this kind of this obstacle for David and and going to the battle lines with Goliath. Look with me at verses 31 through 40 again. This exchange that takes place between David and Saul. David says in verse 32, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And what is Saul's response? Verse 33, You're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him for you're but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But then David gets into the grace that he was shown by God whenever he was watching over his father's sheep. When a lion 
or a bear would come out against the flock, what would he do? He says, I caught, he, speaking of, uh, of a bear, I caught it by its beard and struck him and killed him. Verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. Why? For he has defied the armies of the living God. But he's not saying, listen, I've got the skill. I've got what it takes. I grabbed the, the, the bear by its beard, which I always thought was funny when I would read that text, right? And, and I struck him down. The lion, I struck him down. He's not saying, I've got what it takes. You might be thinking that until you get to this part. Verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He's not saying, I've got what it takes. He's saying, God delivered me. He'll do it again. Now, he also has in an obstacle the fact that no one seems to be pro-David. And really, no one in this whole scenario, this whole scene, no one is pro-God except for David. He's got no armor. He discards the, the armor that Saul gives him. He's got no sword. Like we've already determined, he, he's, he's just a youth. And it's been since Goliath was a youth that he's been training as a warrior. All these are obstacles against David. But David is resolved. Not because of his own strength, but because of the strength of God. Because of his grace and power. David trusts God, not armory. Weaponry. David knows that it was Yahweh who delivered him from the lion and the bear. Therefore, he's confident that God will give him the same deliverance against Goliath. We read Psalm 20 a moment ago, didn't we? Which says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and we stand upright. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. See, as David's looking back on how God had delivered him from the lion and the bear, he's looking back seeing that God has been faithful, and then he's looking forward and saying, okay, he'll continue to be faithful. Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary says this, looking back in faith enables David to look forward in faith. He's been faithful in the past, he'll be faithful again. John Piper would say it like this, God's past grace informs our faith in his future grace. We can expect him to be gracious to us because he's always been. So resolved is David in his faith in the Lord that Richard Phillips says this in his commentary on 1 Samuel. He says, So certain was David of victory over Goliath that he vowed to cut off the giant's head with a sword even though the only sword was in the hand of the Philistine." Who's got the sword? It's not David. It's the Philistine. So he's so confident that that sword is going to be in his hand and he's going to cut his head off that he says so and resolves to do so. David's heart and his faith are focused on God. His heart and his faith in the face of these obstacles point us beyond David, don't they? His faith and his heart point us beyond David. They point us to God. They point us to Yahweh. Is that the way that we think about these Old Testament stories when we read them? 
I hope that we're not stopping at Abraham. I hope that we're not stopping at Moses. I hope that we're not stopping at Joshua and, and Elijah and Daniel and saying, wow, look at that brother. Look at that faith. I hope we go beyond it and say, what, what is their faith in? How was their heart focused? Who was it focused on? The ultimate champion, Yahweh. When we see these characters and we need to think of them beyond just being examples for us, but those who point to the, the one that the Bible's all about. Exalting our great God. Pointing to Jesus Christ, our great Savior. Let's look at, let's look at this ultimate champion in the last section of chapter 17. In verses 41 through 54, the ultimate champion. Now, as we already said, um, in verse 42, Goliath disdains David because of his youth. Goliath, too, is seen as man sees. Not as God sees, but as man sees. The outward appearance is what his eyes are filled with. David comes, as we read earlier, in the name of Yahweh. In contrast to Goliath, who, who defies David by his false gods. These false gods that don't exist. But David comes in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. There's actually a sense in which this encounter is like 1 Kings chapter 18 with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Uh, is Baal going to show up? And can, is he going to show up when they built these altars there, one for, one for Yahweh and one for Baal? never shows himself. But God comes and consumes the altar after Elijah prays. This, because you see this um, de- defiance from Goliath, defying David by his false gods, and you also see David coming in the name of Yahweh, it, there is there's a parallel there. And God is going to show his power here so that there will be no mistake. That there is a God in Israel, right? You see that in verse 47, or verses 46 and 47. He says, I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the field that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly, that's Israel, may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's. It's not David's. It's the Lord's. David's confidence is completely in God's power for the glory of God's name. I think that's so central to understanding this passage of Scripture. David's confidence is completely in God's power for the glory of God's name. So, in terms of application, think about this with me, brothers and sisters. Is God's honor more important to us than our welfare? There's a great contrast between Israel and David. Because Israel is fearful. They won't draw near. They're fleeing. They're dismayed. They're thinking of themselves. They're intimidated. They're quaking in their boots. They're not thinking of God's honor. 
They're not thinking of exalting their God. Their faith is not in God for the glory of God. And at the same time, I think about the focus of David's heart not simply being his own welfare, the welfare of his uh, of his people ultimately, but the glory of God's name. Think about this with me in terms of application. Is our faith in God for our welfare primarily or for God to be glorified above all else? So we talk a lot about needing to believe, right? Needing to trust God. We talk about that all the time in Christian circles. I believe that God will work all things together for my good. I believe God will give me what I need. I believe God will sustain me. Those are good things as long as we're ultimately thinking about so that I may turn around and praise him, so that I may show his worth, so that I may show that he is exalted above all others. But so often we think God will give me what I'm asking. God will protect me in this way. And it stops with us. Do we have faith like David confidence in God's power, ultimately for the glory of God's name. Let us pray, God, give me this. Uh, Will you answer this prayer? Will you be with me in this trial? So that you will be seen, so that your glory will be revealed, so that your grace and power will be on display, because you are worthy of all praise. Not just, I need this, so please give it to me so that my life won't be hard. We've got to finish it off by bringing it back to the Lord in our focus. Is the glory of our God our greatest aim? Brothers and sisters, let's not let our faith be self-centered, but God-centered. I want to show you something very important to seeing this central point of the text in verse 50. Look with me there. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. Listen, there was no sword in the hand of David. Why is that there? Why why make note of that? There was no sword in the hand of David. Well, in that day, what was expected was that battles were won with swords. It was the, the typical weapon of the day. And it was expected that if a battle is going to be won, it's going to be won because their soldiers have swords. It was looked to as the weapon of power and strength. But David does not possess this trusted instrument of warfare. No. And it's not until after he strikes down Goliath that David picks up Goliath's sword to sever his head. This is meant to show that the battle belongs to the Lord. He doesn't have a sword. Why? To show that it's God's power, God's strength. He's there. God's putting himself on display through this weak, young boy. The point is not that David is like a some crazy, skilled ninja assassin with a sling. That's not the point. The point is that God will win the day. God will win the day. God will display his power And David said it himself, the battle is the Lord's. David is an instrument in God's hands, to be sure. He's an instrument in the hands of God who does not fail to uphold his glory. I recall Isaiah 42, verse 8, where 
God says, my glory I give to no other. He's rightfully jealous of his own glory. God often uses the weak to make his glory obvious. We see that theme here because of all the obstacles against David. Because of his youth, because he's not expected to be anybody who would defeat a challenger like Goliath. God God often uses the weak to make his glory obvious. David was the unexpected one. He was not expected to be the one who would take down the Philistine champion. In a similar way, think of this. God chose that the world's savior would be his son, Jesus, and that son would be the son of a carpenter, Joseph. He chose that he would be from a town that was sneered at by many, Nazareth. And he chose that the way that his son would save us is through the abhorrent, shameful death of the cross. Talk about an unexpected Messiah. Look with me at Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, we'll look at verses 2 through 4. Look at the perception of Israel toward their Messiah. What did they think about him? Isaiah 53, 2 through 4. Speaking of Jesus, for he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, men of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That's the way that his own people, the Israelites, that's, the, that's how they perceived their Messiah. He was not the one they expected to be the promised one. But God uses what is weak to exalt his great name. Jesus hanging on the cross. I mean, think of this. Think of how foolish this must have seemed to the Jews of that day. Our Messiah is being crucified. They thought he was stricken by God. He was being punished by God for his own crimes. But he had no crimes. He had no sin. This display of weakness on the cross, but he was doing it to save us. The innocent one hanging so that we would have our sins paid for and we would in return have his righteousness be given to us. But God used it for his glory. We read it already. We'll read it again. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. We read that the weakness of the cross, the abhorrent death of the cross leads to the glory of God. Look with me there, especially at verses 9 through 11. He had been humbled from heaven to the earth to the cross. 
And then we read this starting in verse 9 of Philippians 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The weakness of the cross was ultimately so that every knee would bow at the name of Jesus and that God the Father would be glorified in the end, right? To the glory of God the Father. God, this is what He does. He chooses to use what is weak, what's not noble, what's not powerful, so that He is put on display, so that He is glorified. Remember I told you that this is an underdog story, but it's not an underdog story in the way we've come to expect underdog stories. It's not typical. Because in a typical underdog story, you walk away thinking about the unlikely athlete. You walk away thinking about the character. You walk away thinking about that team. But in this underdog story, we walk away thinking not about David, but about his amazing God. So, because God will uphold the glory of His name. And because He often uses the weak to do so, I want you to think about your own weaknesses for a moment with me. When it comes to serving God, do you see your weaknesses as a liability? When it comes to serving God, your weaknesses are actually not a liability. They're an asset because God works through weakness. His grace and His power come to rest upon us in our weaknesses. And He delights to use us in our weakness to show that His grace is sufficient. He's putting Himself on display. So our weaknesses are not liabilities. They're assets for the glory of God. I remember hearing J.I. Packer, the reformed professor, writer, written modern-day classics for us to enjoy. When he was a boy, he was chased by a bully into the street where he was hit by a car. And he suffered severe injuries that left him unable to play and to be active like the other boys his age, so he had to sit and watch out the window as they were enjoying using their bodies and their legs and arms in a way that he couldn't. It was not long after this, accident that his parents bought him a typewriter. And he used that same typewriter for decades to compose books like Knowing God, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. You see how God used that weakness to exalt his great name? What about your weaknesses? What weaknesses in your life might God use to highlight His grace and power and uphold His glory if only you would turn from crippling self-interest and a focus on your own welfare and your own security and and instead trust Him. Instead, depend on Him and see Him work mightily for Him to be exalted for you to enjoy Him and be satisfied in Him 
as you see him do it. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you are kind to us in Christ. Because of Christ, we can expect you to work in us and through us, even though we are often so weak. But Lord, may we not run from weakness. May we trust you with that weakness. May we have faith that you will use us in our weakness to uphold your glory so that you'll be known. And may your glory be our greatest desire so that we're willing to do whatever is necessary in order for you not to be defied, but to be known, to be lauded, to be praised, to be trusted. Put yourself on display in us, Lord God. And as we see you doing it, may we enjoy you all the more and have more to inform our faith that you will continue to be faithful as we move forward. We pray you do this in Jesus' name. Amen.